Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. And joining us today is our colleague here at the BIV Newsroom. It is Patrick Blinner-Hassett. Patrick, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thanks for having me. I can't remember the last time we had all three of us on together. Yeah, it's you know what? It's been a while. I, Haley's been traveling. Then as soon as she got back, I went traveling. So it's good to have, I guess, the three amigos, the three musketeers, <sighs> you know, whatever you want to call us, right? I'm trying to think of a but. or I'm I'm afraid you, uh, you're actually D'Artagnan. That's what we. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you're, Would you're it be Albert? The, the producer on. is the third musketeer, and I'm the fourth. Uh, yeah, I think he's Porthos. That's Porthos. Okay, yeah. that's that's good. Okay, but, I'll be uh, D'Artagnan. He's a cool guy. Yeah, yeah. They, but, didn't Orlando Bloom play him in a movie? So. He's I think, handsome. yeah, it's, that that's what I was going for. I'll there, take Patrick. it. I take got it. it. Yeah. I'll take it. It's a compliment. I, I'm packing it up. As a compliment. But, uh, you know, it's not just millennials that are talking about um, the Three Musketeers the way that we are. But, uh, Patrick, you've been writing a little bit about uh, what millennials are thinking in the latest edition of the newspaper. Tell yeah. us a little bit what's going on here. I think it's fascinating because we're all technically millennials if you break it down. But I'm not sure if we would all fall into that category like the way that people <clears throat> think of like a typical yeah. millennial like i i was discussing this with uh you and Haley not too long ago about how i'm like an old millennial like a really really old millennial but i yeah. guess i technically fall into that definition yeah i would say i'm an older millennial but i probably have more millennial tendencies than some younger millennials like avocado toast or what would you talk i don't about? know I, okay. my parents have all said that i'm a free spirit so I don't know if that translates to millennial or just poor or like can't hold down a job or I don't know. Haley, how how many of these millennial tendencies do you possess? I am very much not a millennial. No. Like I, Weird, like yeah. I was born in the wrong generation. <laughs> Although I have noticed this sort of, I don't know how to call it, demillennialization. I know people who are millennials and they'll purposely say, oh, no, I'm not that well, much they're, they're pushing, of a millennial. They're pushing back against, yeah. I guess what's going on here but yeah tell us a little bit what are you writing about patrick so it had a story that ran in the past issue and that what they were looking at millennials specifically is millennials investing which probably kind of seems like a bit of an oxymoron because they don't have a lot of money but what millennials are doing is they're doing something called micro investing and it's kind of changing the game because there's a lot of them and there's a lot more of them coming along starting to come into money so Millennials are twice as likely to choose ethical investments over baby boomers and even Gen Xers. And that even though they don't have a lot of money, what they're doing is they're doing this micro investing where they're taking, say, $1,000 or so. Um, and they're uh, using companies like Front Funder. Tyler, I think you've done a couple stories on Front Funder yeah. a few times. And those companies allow them to invest in like a local craft brewery or a local uh, shop and they can put that money in and they can sort of feel good about their investment rather than going to TD and getting a mutual fund, which they have no idea what's in it and no idea, you know, what they're contributing to. So, Do, do we have any sort of sense as to why this is an important thing for certain generations versus others? It's important because um, the big banks, I think, should be scared because millennials don't want to go the traditional route with their money and they don't have a lot of money right now. But I think it's in the, like, the next five to eight years, that wealth transfer and that buying power, the millennials are actually going to start making actual capital that they can invest. 
And what they're telling the investment world right now is that I want to invest in something tangible. I want to invest in something local. I don't want to put a lot of money into it. Um, but I'm not going to allow you to take my money and put it in a mutual fund that might have, say, ammunition company or a mining company even or a non-renewable resources company. Well, even think about all the you know, pushback in the wake of the Parkland shooting. And we had like a lot of people calling on companies to divest from anything associated with, say, ammunition or gun manufacturers. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of that is... Just look at the young people across the United States that are really pushing hard against, say, gun laws that they have down there. So I, it is a bit of a generational divide. Yeah, and they say the you know that common adage where every dollar is your vote. And up until now, the millennials have been incredibly scattered. They haven't had a lot of money. They've had difficulty getting into the job market. But we're starting to see a shift now where they are getting jobs, they are starting to make money, and they are getting enough capital, sort of expendable income where they can start looking at things like investment. And this is only going to get bigger because now we're starting to see the trickle down effect of the baby boomers starting to transfer that wealth down to them. They're retiring, they're downsizing, um, you know. This is going to be something that's going to either blindside the big banks or the big banks will get smart and sort of start setting up these micro-investing things themselves, which they do. I mean, the whole story with the, the big banks and fintech, as Tyler and Haley, you guys know, is that when fintech came around, the big banks just dismissed them. And it was a mistake. And they finally figured out that they need to get in bed with them. And now basically fintech is in bed with big banking because that's where all the money is, right? So... You would hope that this is something that the financial sector can attune to because I think micro-investing and sort of ethical investing is a lot more important to them than it was, say, the baby boomer who had a mutual fund that they had no idea what was in it, but they didn't care as long as it made them a return. So I think we're seeing, too, a trend toward greater transparency, even among traditional players and the ability yeah. to customize your investments to an ETFs, the explosion of ETFs, I think speaks to that to some extent. You can sort of, to some extent, pick and choose areas you want to invest in. And I'm sure that's been somewhat popular among younger investors, too. Fewer fees, it's more accessible. Yeah. And they're very distrusting. I think it's something like, uh, you know, 60 or, yeah. 21% of millennials have a discomfort when it comes to investing. So basically that means that they they don't like banks. I mean, I don't like banks. I don't feel as if the bank is looking out for me, but it's not I think the idea is that a better option hasn't necessarily come along. However, it looks like it's going to be on the horizon because you're getting a lot of sort of smaller credit unions, you're getting different ways to invest your money with cryptocurrencies. And this is all being powered by millennials. And every day now, millennials are getting more and more money from the baby boomers and from income generation. So this is like a cresting wave, tidal wave that is basically on the horizon right now. And if you're going to stand on the beach, you better have uh, a life vest. Is that a, that is a horrible analogy? But I learned to swim personally. Yeah. <laughs> Or learn to swim, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, stay with us. Uh, we're going to talk about some uh, fun news with regards to Toys R Us as well as, well, uh, not so fun news with regards to Canada's prospects of legalizing recreational cannabis. But first, this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. 
Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600 at 604-714-3600. Or else check them out on their website at manningelliot.ca. Gotta ask you this, Haley. Did you ever be like, were you ever a Toys R Us kid, you know? Like, yeah, I, I remember very clearly going to Toys R Us, yeah. and it was exciting, and it was fun. And okay, I've gone as an adult, and I think we've talked about this too. Given perhaps some of the struggles Toys R Us has been going through, they're sometimes sad-looking stores. Some of the stores I've been to have fallen into disrepair. I would say that it's a different experience as an adult, and as an adult without any young kids in my life, I definitely think they a lot of the shine comes off. When you're not necessarily in the market for action figures. Might be disillusionment. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. But uh, there's good news for people that um, are are still considering themselves to be Toys R Us kids. Uh, The uh, Canadian firm, uh, and this is Toronto-based Fairfax Financial Holdings, they've come forward as the loan qualified bidder for the Canadian operations of Toys R Us here. But there was supposed to be an auction to take place. uh, But... Like I said, there was only one qualified bidder that came forward. So uh, they're going to go to uh, bankruptcy court down in the United States to get this approved. But it's a $300 million deal that will see 82 stores in Canada remain open for Toys R Us. And the thing worth noting here, though, is that the Canadian business division has actually been relatively more successful than what we've seen uh, take place and unfold globally. So... Uh, my question is, will Fairfax want to pursue the brands in other countries? Where, where do you fall on this whole um, pursuit of the Toys R Us brand? Because I still think it, it is a valuable brand right now. Patrick. Yeah. I'm, part of me thinks you're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic with this. I mean, I think we. it seems somewhat similar to like Blockbuster and the Blockbuster model is that they tried for years to try and sort of continued on their market share, you know, expanding the video games, uh, you know, and Netflix, when Netflix first came along was sort of like that mail-in thing, Blockbuster got a, did away with late fees, all this type of stuff. You look at something like Toys R Us and you think Amazon is just bloodletting it. Oh, yeah. And whether or not you can stop that or slow the bleeding, I don't know. I mean, I can't remember the last, not that I would frequent a toy store, but um, I can't remember the last time I sort of drove by a toy store and it looked incredibly busy. I mean, those toys, like you said, Haley, those Toys R Us's kind of look a little decrepit, like they're in some southwestern mid-mall in the U.S. <laughs> that's been abandoned for five years, right? And that was totally anecdotally. That's how I felt here. But I will say this. When I was in Southeast Asia, I walked by a couple of Toys R Us locations and they were packed huh. with people walking in and walking out with big bags of toys. So I thought that was very interesting. And of course, in the places I went, Singapore, Malaysia, among them, there are tons of malls. All of them were busy. It's a very different landscape. So in terms of international opportunities, Tyler, Toys R Us seem to be doing very, very well. And I, I think it is still a valuable brand, though. And I think it's just something that maybe has that nostalgia factor for a lot of people. You brought up the Blockbuster example, though. And yeah. I, I'm kind of surprised Blockbuster ended up the way it did, not because his business model wasn't completely flawed, but... I think it was still a valuable brand that everybody recognized and they still could have done something with that. And 
I, I believe I, I'm not mixing up my stories here, but I think that Blockbuster actually had the chance to buy Netflix at one point. Yes, they did. And they said, nah. They said no, they didn't take it. That was when, well, Netflix originally, as you guys, I'm sure you know, was where you would get it in the mail. Yep. Or from a vending machine. Or from a vending machine. And yeah. Netflix realized that that didn't work. And they're like, we should try this streaming thing. Maybe it'll catch on. So... I mean, they kind of got lucky with that. I don't know. Maybe I want to pose this to you guys. Is our toys a generational thing? Like our young kids, I don't hang out with any younger kids, but I don't know if toys are a young people thing. Like everybody's got an iPad, an iPhone. Like, are you still buying physical toys? Like, huh? I've, I've got uh, a niece and a nephew, and I would say as adept as well at least the niece is who's three years old as adept as she is on an ipad she likes her toys she Uh likes her dolls uh there's like some foster brothers in the family that are around age five yeah and uh again big into the ipad but they're also big into like the action figures it Mm. is something that i think is uh, like i know what you're saying yeah I, i think it is kind of fading as people and I think it's scary that you know to see young people kind of get hooked on these tablets at such a young of an age. But I, I think kids still just like they like playing with Spider Man. They like to pretend, yeah. I, and I think that's a good part of childhood is just using your imagination. That's my philosophizing for today. Yeah, yeah. very deep there. But uh, guys, why don't we segue over to a new report out from the parliamentary budget officer, and it's got a bit of a caution for the government. They're warning them you maybe shouldn't be overestimating the potential revenue from legalized recreational cannabis. A new report out says that Ottawa is poised to rake in $175 million from cannabis taxes by the fiscal 2022 to 23. The Liberal government had actually earlier estimated it'd be $220 million. So that's a gap of $45 million in estimates. And I, I think it's becoming clearer and clearer that this is not exactly going to be the cash cow that a lot of people were saying that it was going to be at this point. Yeah. I don't know. You look at a state like Colorado, which was kind of like first through the gate, and they made bank and they made a lot of money. But the states that have followed in the United States, I mean, California is downplaying their investment that they're going to get. They were thinking in like a billion dollars a year. And now I think they've downgraded that to sort of like... 800 million or something so well they have a similar population to canada and they do yeah they have like 36 million or 33 or something like that or somewhere around us so but think about that kind of difference in revenue that they bring in from taxes their estimates versus our estimates yeah but it is interesting i mean think about all the struggles between the provincial and federal governments remember like the provinces had to push back hard and say the burden is falling on us for implementing this. Why are you guys taking the majority of revenue here? So they now they're doing that uh, 50-50 split at this point, but a lot of consternation going on with this. And I don't think it's going to let up as soon as you know the legislation actually passes, though. And I think that's why these estimates and how much revenue will come in are significant, because it is this money that's going to go to pay for enforcement and however provinces deal with it. And we still have yet to get clarity on what the relationship between municipalities and the yeah. province is going to be, too, in terms of revenue sharing, because municipalities, a lot of the work is going to fall to cities. Yeah, well, just think about policing costs. Like, I... I the question marks surrounding everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm still fascinated by how the actual rollout is going to be. It's going to be messy. 
Like, I, yeah. I just wonder how prepared various levels of government are prepared for this mess. And when it's going to be. We've uh, always yeah. spoken about end of July, and now there's rumblings that it might actually get pushed off because there are so many question marks remaining. I don't know. I think the thing that we need to realize with this is that this has never been tried on a federal scale. Um, so that's one thing to take into account. If it's legal in Washington state and legal in Oregon, you still can't go across the border. That's a federal crime. Yeah. If you have a joint in your pocket. This is going to be different. This is going to be if you want to ship pot from BC to Nova Scotia, if you want to drive pot across from BC to Alberta, if you want to put it in the mail. I mean, this but look, we, we can't even buy booze in Alberta and then <laughs> drive it into British Columbia. Yeah. So this is we've never done. No country has ever done anything like this. We are literally first through the gate. So I think the fact that the unknowns are piling up is is totally acceptable. I mean, this is just to be expected. It's not like we can go and source another country that tried this five years ago. But you know, so. what? other countries will be sourcing Canada. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Be- Here's what Canada did wrong when they legalized (laughs) marijuana. Excellent. Uh, We'll leave it there. Patrick, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. And I would say don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. And speaking of finding us, Haley, if somebody wanted to find you, what would be the best way? It's a great segue. They can head on over to (laughs) BIV.com or find me on Twitter. My handle is at Haley Wooden. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Reporton. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. And until next time, this is a Business in Vancouver podcast.